morning, everyone. So as Stuart said, this morning I'm filling in for Andrew. Uh, he's on, uh, he's camping actually. Um, so we'll be looking at Colossians uh, chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. Uh, that is kind of our main passage, but we're looking, it's a topical study this morning versus uh, exegesis like we're often used to. So there is a number of other passages that we'll be also looking at. Um, but uh, if you've all found Colossians 3, if you'll stand with me, we'll read the word. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthy, earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on your new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. You may be seated. Um, for those of you who like to write down lessons, um, like I said, the format's a little bit different this morning. So uh, you may also want to jot down uh, some things throughout the sermon. Uh, there will, will be stuff on the PowerPoint, just for your sake. Um, so our subject this morning, as you can see, is telling the truth. Um, another way to say that would be lying. Um, I'm sure that you've heard sermons in the past. Uh, about lying, and you may even think that it's fairly straightforward, a fairly black and white subject. Um, I'd like to challenge you to listen well today, um, because perhaps you'll be reminded of something that maybe you've let slide in your life, or uh, something that you weren't aware of, um, something that is considered lying by God that we maybe uh, haven't considered before, you maybe haven't considered and I'd like to give, like to give you some tools um, to know whether something is considered uh, a lie according to God's standards. So um, when I began this study, um, I actually assumed it would be a fairly and straightforward study. So I started, as you often do, and when you're doing a topical study, I started by um, looking up all the verses. Uh, pertaining to speaking the truth and lying. Um, and I found that there were a lot. Uh, I had found about 33, and that wasn't exhaustive, uh, verses that were specifically talking about lying. That's uh, on top of all the stories that we have that talk about lying. So um, clearly it's a, it's a subject that's talked about a lot in both the Old and the New Testaments. So in the passage, um, in the Colossians passage, we see in verse 9 that we're commanded not to lie to each other. Um, there's also uh, a reference in there about slander. Um, and it also says, uh, it speaks about filthy language. So in one verse, we have three sort of instances about how we speak. Uh, it's also in the Old Testament, it's commanded 
to of us in the uh, Ten Commandments that uh, were given to Moses. It's the Ninth Commandment. Um, in Exodus 20, 16, it says, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. So it's clear from both the Old Testament and the New Testament that we're not to lie. Um, however, it's not clear entirely just what, from those two verses, just what a lie may be. Um, and people, both believers and non-believers, often differ about what a lie is. Uh, some people uh, have an idea of what might be acceptable, what kind of bending the truth might be acceptable. Um, and I think in, in our culture, sometimes it's even admonished. Uh, I know I had an experience uh, earlier this week. Um, I delivered to a customer. He was a, a car guy. I was in his garage. He was showing me around. And uh, um, he was telling me about how he had shorted somebody out of uh, a set of uh, expensive headlights for a particular vehicle and I thought to myself you know if you're bragging about this uh, I'm certainly not going to bring my car to you but he had presented it in a way that um, he felt that that was an acceptable thing to do given the circumstances um, so I think the best place for us to start this morning would be to determine exactly what it is to lie in biblical terms so I've come up with eight categories um, of lies. It's not exhaustive. Uh, there's, um, uh, if we spend some time, even in dialogue, we may come up with some more. Uh, and there is also some overlap between the categories. So um, in the list, uh, there might be one item that sort of uh, blends into uh, one of the other categories in the list. Uh, now, given that our subject is lying, uh, I should let you know that I haven't come up entirely with this list on my own. Uh, I've borrowed some of them from Andrew's sermon on the same subject a few years ago. Um, and Stuart and I spent a few hours um, hashing out uh, some of these details. So um, we may see also, just like the customer that I delivered to, that some, area, some types of lies as a gray area, and we may think that they are acceptable. Um, to use in, in particular situations because they're not outright lies. So the first one, the first category uh, that I found uh, in scripture, the first category of lies is deceit. Um, we find that in the book of Joshua, chapter nine, uh, verses 3 to 16. You can turn there if you like. Um, you don't have to. That's up to you. Um, so it's actually a great story. One of my favorite stories from the Old Testament. The book of Joshua is packed with um, neat stories that, it, it, you know, you slog through uh, parts of the law and Leviticus. Um, and, it, and it's kind of, you know, it's tough slogging. And then you get to Joshua and it really picks up the pace. The Israelites are going into the promised land. Um, they're conquering, uh, they're developing a reputation um, amongst the people in the promised land that uh, the Israelites are forced to be reckoned with and that God is on their side uh, and that everybody that they set out to conquer has been um, annihilated. So uh, we pick it up um, in, chap in verse 3. So the people of Gideon, Gideon, heard what Joshua had done in Jericho and Ai. So they resorted to a ruse. 
They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn out sacks and old wineskins cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then, when the, when, then they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and they said to him and the Israelites, we have come from a distant country, make a treaty with us. The Israelites said to the Gibeonites, perhaps you live near us, how can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to, to Joshua. Joshua asked, who are you and where did you come from? They answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. We have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan. I'll skip that part for the sake of time. All our elders and those living in the country said to us, take provisions for your journey, go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread of us, they showed Joshua and the Israelites the bread that they had brought, was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now look at it, see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled were new, but now see how cracked they are. And our clothes and our sandals are worn out by a very long journey. So the Israelites sampled their provisions, but they did not inquire of God. Then Joshua made a treaty with them based on obviously the information that he saw, the evidence that the Gibeonites presented. And three days later, the Israelites found out that they were neighbors living near them. So in this passage, we see quite an elaborate deception. The Gibeonites were imposters. They were pretending to be something that they were not, which is a deception, a deceit. Um, I remember years ago when I was in youth group, we actually used to meet at, uh, which is right close to here, the, uh, in the post office building before it was even the post office. Um, when I was in junior high and there was a youth leader there who for a short time had come and he claimed he was a rabbi and he showed us a picture of him in rabbi garb and um, we thought, oh, okay, cool, you're a rabbi. Um, but as time went on, some of the other youth leaders noticed that, okay, there's some inconsistencies to his story. Um, eventually, he ended up committing a hit and run with a truck that he had borrowed from somebody else in the congregation. And through the investigation, it was determined or discovered that he wasn't a rabbi at all and that he was pretending to be one so that he could get in with the group. I'm not entirely certain what his um, intent or his motive was, but that isn't a real life example of where somebody um, uh, was an imposter, was not what they said they were. He wasn't a rabbi at all. In fact, he was a scam artist. So that's obviously an extreme example. Um, it's, it's unlikely that any of us in this room or on Zoom for that matter would go to that extent. However, um, we might be tempted to do something similar on a smaller scale. Um, maybe by telling others that we're more skilled at something than we are or that we've done more things or experienced uh, more things than we actually have just to make ourselves look differently to them uh, in their eyes. So the next one that we have is slander. Uh, the verse we have for this is the passage we started out with this morning, uh, Colossians 3.8. Um, specifically, verse 8, you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, 
malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. So slander is telling an untruth about someone, someone else, that will harm their reputation. Uh, this is often done in the form of gossip. You know, when the other individual, the individual that you're talking about, isn't there, isn't present. Uh, it's generally motivated out of dislike for the person being slandered, uh, wanting, uh, the, desiring that that person looks bad uh, to the person that you're speaking to. Um, I'm sure that many of us have experienced this in our lives or maybe even done this. Um, but we need to understand that no matter how small that mistruth might be, uh, it, this isn't something that God wants us as believers to do. Um, and chances are eventually we will be found out. And when that occurs, the person who did the slandering often looks worse than, uh, than the person that was slandered against. Um, so the exact opposite of what, the, what was uh, the motivation in the slander uh, is what occurs. The person looks bad. The slanderer looks bad. Uh, in the court of law, the phrase that they use for this is defamation of character. So number three is false testimony against someone. Uh, this passage, we have Genesis 39. Um, again, a great story in the Old Testament. Uh, verses 6 to 19. Um, just a little bit of background. Uh, the stories of Potiphar. Um, and Joseph, uh, I'm sure many of you remember the story. Potiphar is the ruler of Egypt, and basically he entrusted Joseph with everything in his care. Um, it says in the passage that he didn't concern himself with anything except the food he ate. So Joseph had a lot of responsibility and also had a lot of trust placed in him. We know that in this story, uh, Potiphar's wife um, was attracted to Joseph, um, the passage says that Joseph was well-built and handsome. And uh, after a while, the Potiphar's wife uh, asked Joseph to come to bed with her. He refused and he explained to her, listen, your husband trusts me with everything. I can't do this. She continually tried. Um, and at some point, um, he continued to refuse. And at some point, we'll pick it up in verse 11, he went into the house to attend to his duties none of the household servants were inside. We can assume that Potiphar's wife arranged it this way. She caught him by his cloak and said again, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and run out of the house, she called to her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard my scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. So she kept his cloak beside her until the master returned, and then she told him the story. The Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Yeah. So this is obviously this is the false testimony. She said something occurred, that he did something that was not true. When the master, when Potiphar heard the story of his wife saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. So in this case, unfortunately for Joseph, 
Um, the consequences of Potiphar's wife's false testimony were great. He lost his job, his reputation was clearly tarnished, and he was imprisoned. So this, again, is an extreme example. In our, in our lives, it's unlikely that we will uh, give false testimony or experience false testimony to this extreme. Um, however, we may be tempted to do it on a smaller scale. Say, uh, if you want to look good with your employer, uh, you give false testimony against a fellow employee to make yourself look better in the eyes of your employer. Something to that effect. That brings us to number four, exaggeration. Now, this is probably one we can all relate to. Um, again, another story from the Old Testament. Uh, Numbers 13. Um, and some background to this. Uh, it's all of chapter 13. I see some of you turning to your, to your Bibles. Um, when Moses and the Israelites were sent out to spy the promised land, after leaving Egypt, they had chosen 12 spies, one spy from each of the 12 tribes. And um, upon returning from spying out the promised land, those 12 uh, spies returned, and they gave testimony to the Israelites and to Moses uh, about what they saw. Now, all of them except for Caleb and Joshua, so 10 out of the 12, um, spread a bad report. So if we look at Numbers uh, 1332, uh, it reads, they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw are of great size. So exaggeration um, is very evident here. And it's perhaps the easiest form of lying to slip into. Because it's not an outright lie. It's, it's an addition to the truth. So... Uh, again, it's, it's a gray area. Some people would look at it as a gray area. And generally, it seems harmless. Um, however, if we look at the motives of the 10 spies in this passage, um, and the motives of our own motives when we exaggerate, it's clear why it's wrong. Um, we exaggerate for selfish reasons. We inflate details to make ourselves sound or look good. Um, and to manipulate the listener, as in the case of the 10 spies who gave false testimony, um, or exaggerate, exaggerated detail rather, um, to make the listener think a certain way. Uh, it, a real life scenario for us today could be when, for example, when we're arguing or fighting with our spouse or maybe a family member, and we say, we use the phrase, you always, uh, you know, do whatever, do whatever. You always leave the toilet seat up. Uh, another one would be, you never, um, you know, you never wash the truck when asked you or whatever it might be. So those are some cases where exaggeration um, might be evidenced in our own lives. So the fifth one we have is flattery. Uh, now we're jumping to the New Testament again. Mark chapter 12. 13 to 15. Um, this is another form of exaggeration. Uh, we exaggerate a characteristic about someone with the hope that they will look favorably upon us. And it's obviously done for selfish gain. Our motive isn't to make the, uh, the individual, the hearer, feel good. 
It's a selfish motive. We want to get something out of them. So in Mark 12, 13, um, the Pharisees are talking to Christ. So it reads, later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch uh, to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And here's, so they buttered him up and now they're going to try and trap him. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? And obviously, um, you can't trick Christ. He knows the heart. So he knew, it says right in the verse, Jesus knew their hypocrisy, hypocrisy and said, why are you trying to trap me? So the intent of the Herodians and the Pharisees was to um, butter Jesus up and to trap him um, and to give him compliments so that he wouldn't have a way out. They were saying things to him that they didn't actually believe. When we compliment another individual, we must ask if our motives are selfish or if we're trying to gain something from them in some way. Or if we genuinely mean what we're saying with the hope that the encourager will be encouraged or the listener will be encouraged. Um, a real life scenario for us today. Uh, as you likely know, most of you know, I like to buy and fix up old stuff, mechanical things, often motorcycles. Um, so I'll go to a seller's house and I will uh, purchase, they'll have something listed, a motorcycle or whatever listed on Kijiji. If I went to the seller and I complimented him, say on his, uh, the way his house looks or his yard looks or how his garage is kept or, you know, a vehicle that he has. Um, and I'm giving him these compliments with the hope that this fellow will now look favorably, favor, favorably upon me um, and therefore maybe give me a better deal when we go to negotiate on the motorcycle. That would be considered flattery. Um, if I'm genuinely giving him those compliments just because I want to encourage him um, and uh, want him to, uh, you know, I, I honestly believe that those things are true, then there's nothing wrong with it. The question is, what is my motive? Um, if my motive is, like I said, to, uh, it's selfish so that I can get a better deal and for him to look favorably upon me, then it's, uh, not, it's frowned upon. Number six, uh, this is another one that's sort of similar to uh, number four is exaggeration in as much as it's not a black and white, pardon me, not a black and white lie, but it's more of, uh, in the gray area, lies of omission or shading the truth. So uh, the man here will likely recognize this story um, as we've been looking at uh, the book of Acts in our men's Bible study. Um, and we recently looked at this passage, Acts chapter 5, 1 to 11. Um, to save time, I'll just uh, kind of reiterate what happens. Um, Ananias and Sapphira... Uh, owned a piece of property um, and in the early church in Acts uh, there were people that were selling properties and bringing the proceeds to the apostles feet to further uh, the gospel and uh, Ananias and Sapphira sold, also sold a piece of property and um, they both were fully aware of the amount that the property was sold for um, and they lied about it so 
we pick up the story in verse 3. Peter said to Ananias, How is it that Satan has filled your heart and you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept back for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Um, as the story goes on and uh, Sapphira comes in, uh, she sticks to the story. Uh, Peter asks her, was this the amount that you sold it for? She lies to him also and says, yes, it was. So the omission was the little bit of money, the difference between what they said they sold it for, the money that they brought to the apostles' feet, and the actual amount. Um, and um, we can see that obviously the consequence in, the, in this chapter 5 of Acts was uh, extreme. Um, so it, again, for us, it likely won't be such an extreme example. Um, however, um, one story that came to mind when I was doing this passage, I have a friend um, who's also kind of a gearhead and he purchased, he likes to fix up old trucks, uh, particularly old Fords. Um, and he had bought one uh, from this other fellow that I know and that the body was in great shape. It was a really good bargain. However, he didn't quite look it over. And when he got it home, he realized there was oil in the radiator. Um, most of you would understand right away that there shouldn't be any oil in the radiator. And so he was uh, quite disgruntled with the seller because that was not disclosed. Um, so this would be uh, a, a today example of what um, an, a lie of omission would be. The seller didn't disclose to my friend that, yeah, there's an issue with the engine, there's oil in the radiator. So the next one that we have, number seven, is cheating. We have two verses for this one. The first, Proverbs 11, verse 1. The Lord detests, detests dishonest scales, but accurate weights find favor with him. Proverbs 22, 28. Do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your ancestors. So in our culture today, we don't quite understand uh, at face value what these verses mean. Um, in biblical times, the time that this was written, uh, scales were used to do commerce. So they would measure out gold or silver to make sure that it was accurate when they were purchasing something. So in this verse, uh, in Proverbs, we see that God detests dishonest scales. What that means is somebody that has weighted their scales in such a way that it's favorable to them when they do commerce, when they make trade. So that the other person is shorted just a little bit and over and over the, doing many, many um, transactions, this would add up to a significant amount for the seller. The do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your ancestors. What this is referring to is in Canada, we have steel pegs that mark your property line. If you were to dig a hole on the corner of your property at your house where you live, there's a steel stake marking where the edge of your property ends and the, and the edge of your neighbor's property begins. Uh, in biblical times, this was, would have been a large stone that would have been set up on the corner of the property of a field so that the farmers uh, understood, okay, this is the edge of the property, draw a straight line between the two stones. Uh, everything on the left side of the property belongs to me and everything on the right side belongs to my neighbor. So a way to cheat 
in, in biblical times would it be to move that boundary stone, even by a few feet, then you would gain over, you know, a, a long distance, you'd gain an acre or two. So obviously these uh, are contextual to the biblical times. However, um, in our life, there is, uh, in our time, there's ways that we can do the same thing, um, where we can cheat people out of uh, things. For example, if we, um, we go somewhere and we purchase something with cash, uh, the teller gives us the wrong amount of change back and we cheat them out of it by not telling them, uh, you gave me the wrong change, here it is back. Um, or if we're a student, uh, like I was again in junior high, uh, we used to have these sheets called Scantron sheets. I'm not sure if you remember those, but you would fill out the little circles. They were usually multiple choice or true and false. And you'd have to black out the little circle uh, for the usually for the major exams. Um, when I was in junior high, I sat near a student that I knew was on the honor roll. She was very smart. So rather than doing the, the work and studying for my test, I would just look off of her Scantron sheet and fill in the little black dots that she had also filled in, thus cheating my way into a better grade. Um, there's obviously other ways that we can cheat nowadays also. Um, cheating on your taxes, telling the government that you actually uh, made less than you did or maybe not disclosing or omitting um, some income somewhere that they would maybe wouldn't find, find out about, some cash income that there is no paperwork for. Those are ways that we can cheat today. And now our last one is breaking your word. Proverbs 25, 14. Like clouds and wind without rain is one who boasts of gifts never given. So uh, if you say you're going to do something and then don't do it, that's what this proverb is talking about. It's disappointing. Uh, and people pleasers struggle with this. Um, and I, I struggle with this myself, certainly not as much as I used to. However, I don't like telling people no. So uh, I would commit to something with one person, maybe my wife, and then later somebody else would phone and say, hey, my vehicle broke or uh, I need to borrow a tool or whatever it is. And I would say, yeah, no problem, come on over. And I would go to work on their vehicle. It's not really an outright lie. However, my wife is now disappointed because I told her I would do something, hang out with her, whatever the case may be. Um, and then uh, I haven't done it. So I have lied. Um, and usually this is driven out of fear of saying no to somebody and the disappointment that they might have when doing that. Um, my boys are, they even at their age understand this concept. They'll ask me, daddy, can we go for a bike ride or can we go play Lego or whatever it is? And I'll say, yeah, when I'm finished this task, we can do it at that point. And, and I'll finish the task and they'll come to me and they'll say, daddy, you got to do this now because you're breaking your word if you don't. They say their exact words to me are, daddy, you need to stick to your word. So even at their age, they understand that this is a mistruth. So there's one additional category um, that I wanted to mention. There's likely more, but this one I felt was worth mentioning. However, I couldn't uh, nail it home with a really solid scripture. So it's not in the list. And this is breaking somebody's confidence. You'll understand pretty quick why uh, it's worth mentioning. But this is where somebody shares something personal with you. Maybe Stuart comes to me and says, hey, Roger, 
Um, you know, the other day, uh, this is what happened. Um, I'm not proud of it, but this is uh, how it went down. I want your advice on it. And he says to me, can you keep this in confidence? Can you make sure you keep this to yourself? I go out a few days later and I share it with Evan. Well, now I've lied to Stuart because I've told him I would keep his word. And then I go and share it with Evan. So why is lying in these forms such a big deal? Well, uh, as we've learned from Andrew in the past, there are certain things in scripture that would be considered good wisdom. So not an outright sin. Uh, for example, certain ways we do our finances would be good wisdom, but not an outright sin. Um, and then there are other things that are outright sins. Lying would certainly be the latter. Um, so let's look at Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 to see uh, what God thinks of lying. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19, and it says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So it's very, very clear what God thinks of lying. It says he hates it. Back that up further with Proverbs 12, 22. It says, the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in people who are trustworthy. So there's a, an opposite a contrast there. He detests lying lips, but he delights in those who are trustworthy. So it's very clear, based on what God thinks of uh, lies, that we need to take speaking the truth very seriously. So now we may ask, okay, what are some reasons that we lie? Now, what might be some motivations why we are, why we are tempted to lie. So I've come up with a few motives again, based on passages um, about reasons that we lie. So the first one we've, I've come up with is to cover up our guilt. So in Genesis chapter three, you all know the famous fall chapter um, in, cha in verse 12. Adam throws his wife under the bus uh, and covers up his guilt by saying to God, the woman you gave me, even though he knew exactly what he was doing when he took the fruit, he was not the one deceived. Uh, another example would be when David misled Uriah in the story of David and Bathsheba. We all know that story. Um, when he asked for, he asked Uriah to come back to where David was to the city to give uh, David a report of how the battle was going. David's motivation wasn't to have that report from Uriah. In fact, he knew uh, how the battle was going. He wanted Uriah to come and sleep with Bathsheba to cover up what David had done so that he would be, his guilt would be covered up. Another reason we may lie is revenge. So this is another story from the Old Testament. 
the story of Jacob and the Shechemites. Um, this is in Genesis chapter 34. It takes the entire chapter. Um, so just a little background to what's happening. Um, Jacob's daughter was raped by the, um, the king or the son of the king of the Shechemites. So Jacob and his sons devised a fraudulent agreement with the Shechemites in order to avenge Adina's rape. And what ended up happening in that story is they ended up killing all the Shechemite males uh, out of vengeance. Um, and, and the reason they were able to do so easily was because of the fraudulent uh, agreement that they had drafted up um, with uh, the Shechemites. Um, and their motivation was revenge, was vengeance. Another reason we may lie is for personal gain. Uh, this one uh, we've talked about, uh, this passage we've already talked about in Acts chapter 5, uh, the story of Ananias and Sapphira again. Uh, Ananias lied about the amount that he sold the property for and the amount that he was laying at the apostles' feet. Um, his goal was to bolster both his bank account and to bolster his reputation. He wanted to look, pardon me, to look good in the eyes of the, the new church. So personal gain. Number four is reputation. So back to the passage we spoke about earlier, Genesis chapter 39, with Potiphar's wife tempting Joseph. She lied to her husband about what had actually happened. The purpose behind her false testimony was to protect her reputation. Um, she didn't want what actually happened to come to light because she would look bad. So uh, in our day, obviously, the classic one we all think of is fishing stories. I know some of you fish in here and you've caught fish this big. Well, in actuality, those fish were likely this big. So um, another one that actually might be closer to home. I know for myself, this is a temptation when I'm talking to other people from other churches. Um, I really like Genesis House and I want it to sound uh, you know, I want to bolster its reputation. So I may be tempted to fudge the numbers, the attendance numbers that we actually have so that other people think that our church is uh, better uh, and bolstered uh, more than it actually is. I'm sure in your lives, you can think of other scenarios where um, you want to uh, exaggerate the truth for the sake of your reputation, for the sake of how people may view you. So this isn't an exhaustive list uh, either. Um, and there's sometimes in uh, our own uh, hearts, there might be more than one reason in a particular lie. So there might be some overlap in these motivations um, behind a particular lie. So now we come to an interesting question. Is it ever permissible to lie? We've established what a lie is. We've established what the motivations behind these lies are. Uh, we've done so with scripture um, and we can certainly understand um, putting ourselves in, those, in the shoes of those individuals or remembering situations where we've been tempted to lie. We can remember what those motivations might be. So the question is now, is it ever permissible to lie? There was a point in time uh, in my faith journey if you ask me, 
uh, if it would be ever acceptable to lie, I would have said just straight out no. I was very, very black and white. Um, and either things were a sin or not, there was uh, very little uh, wiggle room and, and very little gray area. So if somebody would have pressed me further and said, well, what if you were harboring, uh, what if you were in China and you were um, harboring some Christians in your house, uh, or maybe you were holding underground church services in your house, um, what would you do in that scenario? I would have said, well, I would have told the truth and hoped that God in his sovereignty would have uh, dealt with the situation to make it come out uh, appropriately. However, if we look at the story of Rahab in Joshua 2, um, many of you know this story. The Israelites, again, are um, spying out the promised land uh, after their, their slavery in Egypt, and they're going to the city of Jericho. Uh, Joshua sends two spies to Jericho. They end up at Rahab's house, um, and she hides them. She hides them under, the, under her roof, under the uh, flax uh, on her roof. So the officials of her city come to her and say, listen, we hear that there's spies from Israel around. Where are they? We hear that they're at your house. Uh, hand them over to us. And she says to them, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from, which she did. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. She was, she's still talking to the officials from the city. I don't know which way the spies went. Go after them quickly. You might catch up with them. Verse 6. But she had taken them up to her roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on her roof. So this was a blatant lie to the officials, the king looking for the Israelite spies that Rahab had told them. So if we look at Hebrews 11.31, we see God's perspective on this. Uh, again, we know that in the Old Testament, there is lots of um, descriptive stories where uh, the writer is just giving us the facts. This is what happened. So um, I may receive a pushback on this passage where somebody can say to me, well, uh, this passage in Joshua is a descriptive story. Uh, it's not telling us that this is something that we ought to do. At which point I would say, actually, that's not correct. If we look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, it's affirmed that what Rahab did was correct. It says, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Now, those of you who know Hebrews 11, that is the hall of faith. That is the clincher. The writer of Hebrews throws down all these names and says, this is what you need to be like in your faith. So they wouldn't list Rahab there if she was a nobody and if what she did was uh, unacceptable to God. Another passage, again, that speaks of Rahab in the New Testament is James chapter 2, verse 25. It says, in the same way, was not even... Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. She was considered righteous and faithful for the lie that she told to the officials of Jericho. Another interesting story to consider 
in the Old Testament would be the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1. Um, so, uh, as you recall, um, the Pharaoh of Egypt was looking at the Israelite nation. Um, they were slaves at this point. Uh, this is um, in chronological order is before the story we just um, talked about, about Rahab. Um, and uh, the king of Egypt is looking at the Israelite nation and he's saying, wow, uh, these um, Israelites are really multiplying. If I'm not careful, I'm going to have a coup on my hand, uh, on my hands, and they're going to revolt and we will no longer have our slaves. So he, he makes a law and he says that any Hebrew baby that is male needs to be killed. If it's female, it's allowed to live. Um, and he goes to the midwives, and the midwives are the ones that are supposed to uh, um, apply this law. So the Hebrew midwives are actually the ones that are supposed to kill the male babies, the Hebrew male babies. When he, uh, Pharaoh realizes that this is not occurring, that um, the Hebrew midwives are not obeying him whatsoever. In fact, the, there's still sons being born every day. He calls them to his palace and he says, listen, what's going on here? How come the Israelites are still multiplying? How come there's Israelite baby boys around? Um, why have you let them live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. Again, this is Exodus 1. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, God gave them families of their own. Again, uh, this is uh, descriptive and prescriptive. Um, because we see that God, uh, God was kind to the to them. So God agreed with what they were doing. This was also, this is then also a lie, just like Rahab's lie, that God was in favor of. So uh, a real life example of this, again, nowhere near as extreme as these two biblical examples, would be my wife's birthday a few weeks ago. We're at a store um, and she sees, I don't even remember what it was, but she sees something that she likes and it's the day of her birthday or maybe the day before, I can't remember. And I pretend like I hadn't purchased her anything. Um, and I'm like, oh, you like that? Well, I'll buy you that for your birthday present. And she kind of looks at me like, I really hope that you've already bought me something. And I kind of play along with the ruse for a little bit and lead her to believe that I haven't bought her anything. Later that day, I bring her the gift bag and she opens up the present that I had purchased a week or so earlier and she's very surprised. So um, later, my wife never came to me and said, hey, why at the store, why did you try to deceive me into thinking that uh, you hadn't bought me anything? She actually was very pleased with the surprise. My motive in telling my wife or trying to cause her to think that I hadn't um, purchased her a gift yet was so that she would be surprised. I know that my wife likes surprises. I'm not always that good, good at bringing her good surprises and getting good gifts. It's not my forte. However, in this case, she was actually quite surprised and quite pleased. Because of my motive, uh, the lie wouldn't be considered as um, wrong. So in the examples of Rahab and the Hebrew midwives, 
the lies were told also for the benefit of the others. Um, the benefit of the Israelites, the benefit of the Israelite spies in the story of uh, Rahab, and in the uh, story of the uh, Hebrew midwives, the benefit is to the, uh, all the Hebrew male boys, the, the babies. In fact, in both those scenarios, if the lie, the truth was found out, the teller of the lie, Rahab and the um, Hebrew midwives, would have been punished. Likely, they would have received uh, the death penalty. So it's the, the opposite. Instead of bolstering themselves, they put themselves on the line and risked the, their own livelihood for the sake of the other person. So that leads us to our first lesson. God finds it detestable when we speak in such a way that others are misled for our own selfish gain. We get this again from the Proverbs passage uh, where it says that um, lies are detestable, lying lips are detestable to God. So God hates it. He hates lying. He realizes that it destroys our relationship with other people, including our relationship with God, and it's disrespectful to him and it's disrespectful to others. Next lesson, as believers, there are circumstances where lying can honor God when it lines up with his kingdom. So as we've investigated the story of Rahab um, and the uh, Hebrew midwives, the motivation behind the lies was self-sacrificing. Rahab and the midwives were sacrificing their own well-being for the sake of somebody else. Those lies were, are acceptable to God. In fact, it got Rahab in the Hall of Fame. I appreciate your attention. Um, I will close in prayer. And uh, then after prayer, we will have a time of dialogue. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Um, thank you that there are such great examples in your word of how we are to live and what you expect of us and thank you that there is nothing vague if, if we have a question about a topic uh all we've got to do is spend some time in your word and do some study um, i pray that you would guide the dialogue from here on in uh, as well as the fellowship uh, later this afternoon in your name